When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. On this episode of Newt's World, you're going to get to meet somebody who I have found to be one of the most fascinating and interesting personalities that we've ever had on the podcast. I'm confident that as you get to know her, that you're going to have the same reaction I did, which is that she's just a remarkable, original, totally her own person, and a great contribution to the diversity and the energy and the ideas that make up America. She is Virginia Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears. And I must say, when I recently saw her speak at the American Legislative Exchange Council, you could have heard a pin drop. Every single person in that room was paying total attention to her, and she was earning it because she's so fascinating. So thank you for joining me today, Winsome. I'm very grateful. And I think the achievement of the Virginia Republicans winning back the governor's mansion is one of the most exciting races we've seen in a long time. And we'll talk about it. But first, I think we ought to talk about you, because I think you are, in your own right, a phenomenon. Now, as I understand it, you were born in Kingston, Jamaica, in March of 1964, and you immigrated to the U.S. when you were six years old in 1970. And from then on, it became an American success story. But can you tell us a little bit about your dad and coming to the U.S. at that early age? Yes, Mr. Speaker, thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you. And I tell you, you never can plan your life because I never in a million years thought I would be before you now speaking. So it really is truly an honor. 
So my father came to America in 1963, August 11th, 17 days before Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. And so I said to my father, why would you come then? Because, you know, it was a very hard time for us. And for those who don't know yet, I'm black. And my father is black too. And he said, because this is where the opportunities were. I said, yeah, but you came at the height of the civil rights movement. And he said, this is still where the jobs were. And so he only came with a dollar seventy-five. And in fact, I'll tell you, he couldn't remember if he came with a dollar fifty or a dollar seventy-five. So I'm spotting him a quart. Well, anyway, he came and took any job he could find. He moved in with his sister when he came and got roommates, moved out six months afterwards, and put himself through school with the money that he made. And started his American dream, you know, bought his house, et cetera, et cetera. And now he's comfortably retired. And, you know, I say all that to say that remember when my father came at the height of the civil rights movement. You want to talk about dog whistles? Okay, there was that. The fire hoses, there was that. But you know what he didn't do, Mr. Speaker? He did not go back home. No, he did not. He said, this is where the opportunities were, and he was going to take advantage of them. And we did. Because, you see, racism is everywhere, is it not? Racism is in every country. If it's not racism, it's colorism. And we, the black community, can tell you about that all day long. There wasn't so long ago when, if you were not light-skinned, that you could not join certain black organizations. So we need to get off that high horse that we have. And if it's not colorism... It's tribalism. If it's not tribalism, it's classism. It is whatever it is because we're human beings and we divide ourselves. We have a saying in church. I may not be what I'm supposed to be, but I ain't what I used to be. And that's America. She may not be what she's supposed to be, but surely she ain't what she used to be. Look at me. I am here. And I was not even born here. I came off the plane I am still the immigrant. My children are first-generation Americans. So you can say, and I've heard people say, you know, that you can come here and then in one generation, you can be, you know, president of the United States. Well, I am the same generation that got off the plane. And in my same getting off the plane, I am second in command in Virginia. I am going to be the lieutenant governor, and that's the greatness of America. So I want to go back now. Here's this six-year-old girl getting off the plane, as you put it. Where were you all living? We lived in the Bronx, and I can tell you it was a bit traumatic for me because, remember, I came from sun all day long. No matter the season, it was always sunny. You know, in Jamaica, you don't ever ask, how's the weather? The weather is always hot and sunny. And then, you know, I'm used to walking barefoot in the grass and fruit trees in season all the time. And I come to another country, there's snow on the ground, and the culture is different, the smells are different, everything is different. And it was very traumatic for me, very traumatic. But here I am, I got used to it, apparently. <laughs> I just have to ask this because of my own background. So did you go to the Bronx Zoo since you lived in the Bronx? Yes, we did everything that was American because you want to be an American. You want to adapt. And this is America. 
And we didn't come here to be separate. We came here to succeed. That was the whole purpose. The opportunities are here despite the other issues. And so when we talk about racism, you know, it's just one more hurdle. And we'll get over it. So your dad took any job he could and put himself through school, and you went through school. Yes. And then you decide at the age of 19 to join the U.S. Marine Corps. Now, why did you decide to become a Marine? Well, I tell you, had it not been for my grandmother, I would not have joined the Marine Corps because I had graduated from New York High School early, and my classes were set, and I was supposed to start college that August. I was all set to go, had my books ready, had everything ready, but then my grandmother died that July, that same year, July, and I looked at her in the casket. I went back to Jamaica for her funeral. I looked at her, and I thought, what is the purpose of my life? She died when I was 18. I thought, if you're just going to die, then I'm just going to die myself, and I remembered that the Marines really could help me, and in fact, there was a jet magazine in Jamaica on my mother's coffee table, and I picked it up, and it fell to the few, the proud, the Marines. And I said, well, if anybody can give me a reason to live, it's going to be the Marine Corps. And I joined because I needed the discipline and because America had been so good to me. You served both as an electrician and as a diesel mechanic, which had to be a range of learning you hadn't quite expected when you saw that picture? Well, I tell you, I became an electrician and, you know, we always have to repair the floodlights and the generators. And so you had to also become a diesel mechanic too. And I did that because I'd heard my grandfather say to the older grandkids that a college degree is wonderful, but get a trade because then they can't take that from you. And that's because he grew up in the depression. And, you know, you always had work if you had a trade. So although I have my master's degree now, I do have the ability from time to time, you know, to diagnose a few things. <laughs> How did it feel being in the Marine Corps? Oh, it was wonderful because I just gravitate to discipline, I suppose. I gravitate to authority. I gravitate to leaders. And that's what the Marine Corps did for me. It gave me the discipline, gave me authority. I'm not a big bone woman, as we might say. I'm quite petite, but when you have rank, you have authority. And I got to tell these great big hulking guys once I started picking up rank, we've got to do this, this, and this, and then they respected the rank. And that taught me something else as well, that once you're given leadership, then you don't abuse it. And in fact, you try to make more leaders. It lightens your burden, certainly, and it develops others in their natural talents, because you can't do it by yourself. And I saw leadership modeled for me when I saw, for example, we had an inspector general's inspection, and most people who have been in the military know that you don't want to fail these. And so we were working very hard, very hard. And one night the warrant officer came out and gave us a pep talk, but I tell you what he did after that. He took off his wonderful uniform and put on his camis and his utilities and was out there moving equipment and working on equipment with the rest of us. And he got more out of us that night than he had all the days previous. And I said to myself, okay, 
understand about that too. You have to model leadership and you have to be willing to do the grunt work so that you can get the respect. And in other words, you know, as a woman, men have natural tendencies to want to protect women. And so they would want to help me dig the ditch or dig it for me. But I understood if I let them do that, I would not earn their respect. And so I had to dig my own ditch. I think Israel has it right where they require of every citizen that they serve their country for two years. And I think that's probably what's missing in our everyday lives in America. We always think now that the country owes us something when we are the ones who will keep the country the great country that she should be, whether it's Peace Corps or whether you join the military. I think we ought to require of our citizens at least two years to make your country great. When you think back to all this, if you had not gone in the Marine Corps, do you think you'd be a dramatically different person today? I think I would simply because I love the Lord and he's a great part of my life. And I understand, according to the Bible, that my steps are ordered by him. So I think whatever path I would have taken, I think I would have ended up here no matter what. But he used the Marines. So when you got out of the Corps, you really invested in education and went to Tidewater Community College. Then you graduated from Old Dominion. And then you got an MA in organizational leadership at Regent University. So you spent a lot of time learning. Ever since I was a little kid, I loved arguing. I thought I was making points, but my parents and everybody said, well, you were arguing all the time. You always wanted to know why you had to do something. And I was preparing, I tell my mother now, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. And when I left the Marine Corps, I thought about that again. And I didn't want to be 40, Mr. Speaker, and wonder what if. And so I went back to school. But you see, by that time, I already had three children. They were under five. And I figured I was so old. I was maybe 26 when I went back to get my college degree so that I could move on to becoming the lawyer that I thought I wanted to be. And no one can tell me, you know, that I had it easy. Again, three children under five, my husband and I. My husband took a lower paying job so that he could be home more with the children so that I could go to school. We sold one of our vehicles so that we could reduce the cost of living for us because, you know, I wasn't working. And it was a hard time for us. I put one of my girls, the last one, on the back of our bicycle <laughs> in the carrier because we were using one vehicle and took her to daycare. The other kids went to school. So, you know, I came up the hard way. But I knew I wanted to get somewhere. In order to get there, I was going to need the knowledge to get there. And eventually I was accepted to law school. But something changed. What happened, I ran the homeless shelter, and I just saw for them that maybe I didn't want to really be the attorney. I wanted to be the person who was arguing things, arguing. That's what I like to do. I like to make points and research and all that. And so the very next year, after I was accepted to law school and I decided not to go, I was elected. So what I was going to do as an attorney, I was going to work within a system that I was given. But then I ended up creating the system. So it was very interesting. Well, I don't think I'd ever heard that story. Were you shocked? When I won, 
Well, I saw that things weren't being done the way that I thought they could be. For example, my representative didn't seem to care what we thought. Nobody ever knocked on my door and asked me for my opinion on the issues. And I didn't see it happen anywhere else. And I was asked to run. And I thought, you know, after I prayed about it, yes, I'm going to run. And remember now, I ran in a 58% black district, 62% Democrat overall. And I ran against an incumbent who had been there for 20 years. His father had the seat before him, 11 years. So 33-year dynasty in the family. And I only had three months to run. And I had no money. But, you know, we did it. I couldn't have done it by myself. I had a lot of volunteers, and we did it. It's a little bit like the story of Ed Doerr, Jr., who beat the state Senate president in New Jersey. I believe Republicans should ignore blue district, et cetera, and say, if I can find the right candidate with the right heart willing to work hard enough, anybody is potentially vulnerable. And it must have been a huge shock to both the Democrats and the Republicans when you won because the Democrats didn't think they could lose and the Republicans didn't think they could win. I mean, did that automatically draw attention for you when you got to Richmond because you sort of stood out as a remarkable candidate? Again, I didn't seek anything and I wasn't thinking about making history when I ran. I just knew that somebody had to challenge him and that somebody should be me. Why not me? Nobody else was stepping up and so I did. And when I won, certain things happened. I became the first black Republican woman ever elected to the General Assembly. I was also the first female immigrant, you know, Republican, Democrat, it didn't matter. I also was the first female veteran, you know, Marine Corps. What was more important, I think, than anything else is that I was the first Republican to represent a majority minority district since 1865. So it let people know that we can have Republicans represent black districts, Asian districts, you know, majority, whatever, Latino, that we should never, ever not go and talk with everybody. We should never concede people to Democrats. We have the better ideas. And if you never go and talk to the population, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they'll never vote for you. You've got to come and make the case. I think Republican Party ought to start thinking about itself as a business. A business needs customers. You don't care where your customers are coming from. You go find your customers. And if your customers are listening to a certain radio program, go pay for time there. If they're reading certain newspapers, go advertise there. If they're in certain restaurants, go find them there. Go and find your customers so that your business will survive. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. 
But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, it's fascinating to me because... You did have this great upset victory, and you were representing a district very effectively. But then you decided to tackle Democratic Congressman Bobby Scott, and you got 31% of the vote. How did you reconcile the ability on the one hand to win the state house seat, but on the other hand being in a match with a system which is very, very hard to break through? It was a bigger district. It was a much bigger district. I was not as known up in the Richmond area. In fact, there were people after the election, they never knew me. I never received the money that I could have to make a bigger dent. And I saw that as I was making the rounds and trying to tell people about his terrible record, where, in fact, he had voted that you could have computer-simulated child pornography because it was a First Amendment right. And when I tried to tell people about that, they didn't believe me. And I didn't have the money to get that message through. He also voted that it would be all right for someone to take your underage daughter out of the state for an abortion and just bring her back as if nothing happened. You know, and I couldn't get the message out because I didn't have the money. It was really the same thing happening that happened in my delegate race that I won, where I couldn't get the money because nobody believed that I could do it. But when you have a more contiguous district and a smaller district, you can make a bigger impact, I think. But when your district stretches from one end of it to the other, 
it's very hard. And people just didn't believe that he had such a bad record. And he had so many other things. I just couldn't get it done. When that happened, you went on to start a plumbing, electrical, and appliance repair business, sort of taking advantage of what you learned in the Marine Corps. You became the owner of a small business. What was that experience like? As you think about it and you think about other people who want to go out and start a small business, what's your advice? Well, life is not easy. If there's something you want to do, I say go for it. Go for it. Don't get to be 80 years old and wonder what if. That goes with anything. Just do it. America is the land of possibilities. And as my grandmother always used to say, there's nothing that beats a try but a failure. And if you fail, what does it mean except that you tried? And if it's not that, then it's something else. Thomas Edison said he had, what, a thousand ways he figured out not to do something? Just go ahead and try. So that's what I did. There's nothing in my life that has ever been easy. And as I said, this is just one more obstacle. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. I started with a phone number and the name. No employees, no nothing. In fact, I really didn't know very much about the business because it was mostly appliance repair and plumbing. I don't know anything about those things, but I found the people and I knocked on doors to introduce my business. I joined lead exchanges to build the business. And by the way, I started my business in the Great Recession. <laughs> in the Great Recession, I started it. And we grew to be just about half a million dollar company in an industry I knew nothing about. So I'm used to tackling the difficult things, but I'm not special. We all have difficulties in our lives. And as I've said before, there are times when you're the pigeon and other times you're the statue. It's just the way life is. You've got to keep going. But America is the place to try new things. And you also had a strong civic sense because while you're running the small business, you're also director of a homeless shelter of the Salvation Army, and then you've led a men's prison ministry. You seem to have a desire to be a good citizen and to contribute to the community in ways that are very, very important and very human. Well, I think that comes from what I saw. My grandmothers were very giving people, and I remember being jealous that we didn't have their attention all the time, as children all want to do. And then I thought I would never be like them, and Lo and behold, I'm just like them, learning to give of yourself. And as a Christian, it's required of us. And I think at a certain point, your heart takes over and you want to help. But I think in that, we have to be very careful because you come to realize that although you want to help people, you can be an enabler instead of someone who helps. And you have to understand the difference. When you see that people are maybe abusing your help, or you understand that they're not even trying themselves. It's like a drowning man. You have to wait until he's tired. Then you can help him. Otherwise, he'll bring you down with him. Same thing. You learn that you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And you've got to sometimes cut ties because obviously they haven't hit bottom yet. So there is this thing about being a good person, a kind person, but also try not to be an enabler. Don't help somebody be a failure. I talk to people, for example, from California, where the scale of the homeless encampments now is just breathtaking. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you do about the homeless to enable them to get out of these camps and get back to life? 
You know, I remember one day I was in Richmond here in Virginia, and there was snow on the ground about a foot. And I drove by a man who was in the snow. He was in the bus shelter, and you could tell he was homeless. So I drove back around the block, came back around, and stopped. And I said to him, you don't have to be out here in the cold. You can go to the Salvation Army homeless shelter. It's just down the street. And he said to me, stop me right away. He said, I don't want to go there. They have too many rules. And I drove off because I understood. I couldn't help him. I gave him an opportunity. He didn't want to take it because he said there are too many rules. And you see, it's because he's a rule breaker why he is where he is. Another day, I was in Washington, D.C., and I saw a man standing there begging. So I went over to him and I said, I won't give you the money, but I'll buy food for you. So I said to him, follow me across the street to the McDonald's and I'll go ahead and buy you whatever you want. You know what he said to me, Mr. Speaker? He said, I'm not even eating over there today. I'm eating here today. Do you know what here was? The $10 sandwich place. That's where he was eating. So he wanted me to leave him alone and mind my own business. Meantime, I was eating at the McDonald's. I was at the dollar menu. You see what I'm saying? But I'm not the homeless one. And so I think we know that the homeless population, they are mostly addicts or they have mental health issues. So we have to figure out how to help the addicts separate from the ones who have mental health issues. And then there are quite a few veterans, by the way, who are homeless. So we have to go and talk with the people and find out what's going on. But they cannot be on the side of the street defecating. We are a civilized society. So something has to be done, and better minds than mine will have to come up with a strategy. But we also have to remember that the people are adults. And, you know, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And until somebody hits rock bottom, you cannot help them. I've just given you two very good examples. So you continued in this passion for public service. You actually were vice president of the Virginia State Board of Education. As you look back on that experience, I mean, what's your sense of what we have to do to fix our school systems? Well, I tell you that no matter what position I've held, I've always asked myself, what would somebody want to know and want to accomplish who has my current position? So I would say to myself, what would a parent ask the superintendent standing in front of them? What would a parent ask the principal, the school board member standing in front of them? My questions were always, you know, really straight and to the point. Why is the school failing? Why are the children not learning? Tell me about your curriculum and what needs to improve. Your school has been failing for five years. What have you done to change things? My questions were always very straight, very to the point. I think that what we need to do when it comes to education is we have to have competition. Plain and simple. In my business, I would have loved it, loved it, if when you move into my zip code, you could only use my business and my business only. Oh, boy, that would have been wonderful. 
But that's not the way the real world works. But why is that okay when it comes to K through 12 education? The minute that I move into a certain zip code, my children can only attend this elementary school, this middle school, and this high school. I have no choice. And everybody knows I have no choice. The only choice I ever have when it comes to education is if I can move my children out of district, pay for them, or if I can send them to a private school or whatever. That's no competition then. And the people who advocate that it's public school and public school only, they live in neighborhoods where the school system is great. Or they live where they can have choice by paying for private school. So I say we need competition in education. Now, you will hear people say, well, you shouldn't have public monies spent towards private schools. But let's wait a minute. Let's think about this. Don't we have public monies going to private businesses? Of course we do. Section 8, rental vouchers. The government gives public money to landlords, private landlords, right? When it comes to SNAP benefits, food benefits, the government gives public money so that the person can take it to a private grocery store and buy food. When it comes to Medicaid and Medicare, the government gives public monies to any doctor, hospital, etc. And think about this, financial aid. We don't tell a child that you must go to the college or university that's closest to your zip code. No, we tell them go anywhere, even out of state. Public money is going towards private institutions. Yes, some are state. Yes, some are government. But why is it in the K through 12 area that we're limited? And this is the foundational years. Makes no sense to me. So we need competition and we need it now. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm curious, what led you to decide to be the national chairperson for black Americans to reelect President Trump? Well, as a lot of people have said, you can like the policy, the personalities, and everything. But we are seeing results. And it's the same reason why 24% of black men voted for President Trump, because they saw results. And there are other people who voted for him. Latinos saw results, you know. There were a lot of things he said that I thought, oh, God, I wish he hadn't said that. Or a tweet, oh, I wish he hadn't said that. But when we saw that black entrepreneurship increased to a point that we had never seen historically, 400% increase because of his policies, when we saw that he was giving money to historically black colleges and universities, that he restored, in fact, the monies that President Obama had taken away. And then he provided a permanent funding stream so that the HBCUs wouldn't have to keep coming back to the federal government every year, hat in hand. I mean, these are the things he did. And then let's talk about prison reform. You know, the black population is inordinately represented in the prison population. He have gained so much and changed so much. And so it is no wonder that he got so many black votes that you have to go all the way back to President Nixon can see that kind of result. So I thought, you know, well, we can work on the personality or something. And then he had hope for America, wanted America to be great. And so many immigrants gravitated to that because America has to be great because who else is there, Mr. Speaker? Who else is there? You see what's happening in England. And, you know, I don't know about Canada. China is scheduled to be the number one superpower as the economists tell us, by the year 2030. And we can't allow that to happen. And so I went and I tried to raise money so that we could get him elected. So coming off that, though, you then made the decision that you'd run for lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. And I realize that there's courage all through your life, but that's still a pretty big decision to make. What led you to decide that this was the right year and that you were just going to put your name out there? Well, you know, I actually never wanted to be lieutenant governor. When I left politics, I was done. I figured it's time for somebody else to be on the stage. It's time for somebody else to come up with all the answers of how we can achieve world peace. I just want to relax and enjoy my life and do what I wanted to do for a change. But there comes a point where you see things that are not right and you say, well, you can either light a candle or you can curse the darkness. And to curse the darkness is to be a victim. But to light a candle is to find a solution. And I always believe there's a solution out there. And apparently I was the solution. So I stepped forward because as I looked at the educational scores, I saw that the kids were not learning. And I looked at my opponents and I thought, we're going to lose again. And we can't afford to lose as Republicans anymore. We had made great strides into 
the immigrant community, Latino community, the black community, and we needed to keep that. We can't keep winning the same people over and over again. And as I said, education was it for me. And so I came back into politics. I've been gone for 20 years and it was time. It was time for me to get back in and offer my services and see if the people would hire me again. It was fascinating. I watched that campaign very closely and particularly stayed in close touch with Jeff Rowe, who was running Youngkin's campaign. And I watched you guys, and it just seemed to me that between you and Jason Meares running for the attorney general slot, in a sense, you totally broke up the left's normal attack on Youngkin, which would have been, of course, that he was somehow a white racist, etc. That became so absurd that I think it was a significant part of how the breakthrough occurred and why you all were able to win. I thought it was a very, very good campaign where all three of you did a superb job of representing yourselves, but also representing a ticket more than often happens in Virginia politics. And on election night, when you were standing in front of your cheering supporters at a victory party, you said, I'm quoting you, what you are looking at is the American dream. Now, that must have been a moment of just extraordinary excitement for you and your family. Yes, it was, because all I wanted to do was serve. I wasn't trying to make history. In fact, I wasn't even thinking about that. You know how it is when you run for office. You've got to have that fire in the belly. If you don't have it, you are just not going to make it. And every insult that you get as you run, it's going to mess with your mind. So you have to make up in your mind that this is what you want to do, that you have the better ideas and come, you know, as they say, hell or high water, you're going to get to the finish line. That's what we did. We thought that we had the better ideas, that we could bring some change where the children would be able to learn, where we could have safe neighborhoods, safe communities, where we could get our economy back on track. You know, you probably saw where CNBC had said that Virginia was number one when it comes to business, and that's because they threw in a lot of social justice stuff in there. That doesn't make a dime for anybody, but it makes certain people feel good. But it doesn't put any money in anybody's pocket, and that's what we're talking about, people being able to make choices for themselves. And then another thing that my win did, those of us who are black or Asian or whatever we are, we got to say that. We can be Republicans. We can be anything we want to be. And by the way, we're not asking anybody's permission because this is America. People look at me and they immediately think, ah, Democrat. Now, what kind of power do I have? None. So I ran also, told people, listen, it's okay to believe anything you want to believe in. First of all, you're kind of a human force. You remind me of a handful of people I've known like Jack Kemp, where you just, you fill the space. And in a way, it seems to me that you're virtually fearless. I don't know about that. There's a lot of fear involved, but you've got to push it to the side. Well, then you're very courageous. I don't know about that either. I think if I'm on the side of right, if I have God in my life, then I'll be just fine. Whether I win or lose. I win anyway, even if they tell me I've lost. <laughs> Look, I hope that after you've had a little while in office and you have begun to get the things done you believe in, that you'll come back and join us again. I think you're going to become an important national figure. I think that you have, both in your personal life, in your personality, in your commitment, in your willingness to work really hard, you have just a lot of characteristics of real leadership. And I'm really looking forward 
to seeing you and Glenn Youngkin leading the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I know that there are going to be very exciting things ahead for the state and that you're going to be part of that excitement. Well, I hope to have the voters be thankful that they voted for me because I'm thankful to them that they're giving me a chance to show them how true servant leadership can be because I've seen it modeled and I've seen what's not good about politicians who don't care for the people, who forget that we elected the politician and the politician is supposed to come back and be accountable to us and not the way around. And we need to stop worshiping our political leaders. This is America. We don't do that. I think you've got it exactly right. And I really appreciate knowing all the different things you've got to get done between now and your inauguration. I really appreciate your taking the time. And I think that this podcast is going to be listened to very carefully by a lot of folks. And I'm going to make sure that a number of Republicans around the country get it because they need to learn the lesson that if you've got courage and you go out there, you know, don't worry in advance about what kind of district it is. Worry about reaching out to the people and you're living proof, both in your state legislative race and then again in the lieutenant governor, that if you've got the courage to go out and do it, if you're willing to work hard, it's amazing what you can get done. And go and find your voters. Go and find your customers and don't go for the vote. Go for the heart. Even don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you make a mistake, that's fine. But go and find your customers. This is a business. Go and introduce your ideas. You're going to find that there are more people who believe in the American dream, who believe that there are certain ways to be, that you don't throw good money after bad, that you can help people who don't want to help themselves, that if you find somebody who really needs to help, help them. Don't say, well, that segment of the population will never vote with us. How do you know? Don't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. See, the old ways are still the better ways. That's right. And I ran twice and lost before I won. And I tried to elect a majority every two years from 1980 until we finally did it in 94. So I'm living proof that if you just keep pounding away, sometimes you break through. And that's maybe part of why I'm so attracted to you is that you have that same spirit. And I think you're going to prove to be a great leader. And I just want you to know I'm very grateful you're with us today. And I am going to call on you after you've had about a year of this experience and say, would you come back and chat with me and help people understand what you're learning? Because I think you're going to learn a lot and you're going to achieve a lot. I hope you have a wonderful holiday with your family. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you to my guests, Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears. You can learn more about Sears and the Virginia election on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.